I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. So you want to start out the show thanking our Patreons? Of course I do. Okay. (laughs) Thank you to everyone who contributed to our Patreon page this week. That is patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. There you will get bonus content. And uh, yeah. Okay. So this week we had Haley, Emily, Kiera, Siobhan, Christopher, Morpho, Elizabeth, Chelsea, Della, Amy, Michael, Sherry, Melissa, Thomas, Jill, Liz, Susan, Heather, Kenneth, Sarah, Jacob, another Sarah, and Allie and Tim. Wow. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks for the support. Um, I also wanted to give a special shout out to Renata, who sent us a donation on PayPal. Yeah. Thank you so much, Renata. Uh, she sent me a message last week. She's like, do you guys give shout outs to people who do a donation on PayPal? Because she had told all her friends that she was going to get a shout out last week. And I was like, we we're just so busy and we forgot like, cause it wasn't on the list right. when we go through the emails. So I just wanted to give her a special shout out and you do get a shout out if you do a donation on PayPal. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we, we actually had just happened to forget that we, right. We had, so yeah. I actually put it in my story notes. I was like, give Renata a shout out just to make sure. Cause I couldn't like not do it again. Yeah. I would feel so horrible. Yeah. Well, but yeah, thank thanks. you so much, Renata. You're rad. Yeah. Uh, so Anyways, let's get to it because I have like a lot to get to today. I'm excited. I had actually planned on doing a different story, but there was like 18 hours of videotape that I would have had to gone through. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I was just like very busy this week, so I was like maybe another time. I just could not get it together. Right. But I will one day. So someone mentioned this. I think it was actually a Patreon uh, supporter and like a message to us. And it was a story that I had been wanting to do for a while. I just hadn't gotten around to it yet. And that is the story of Barbara Graham, also known as Bloody Babs. I think that's what he said in his little message. And it's, it's her story is the basis for one of my all time favorite movies called I want to live, which is like one of the most dramatic titles ever. It's so I mean, I do think it has an exclamation point. It does. Yeah. So you know we're serious. Uh, that movie stars Susan Hayward. It's a great movie. Didn't she win an Oscar for yes. that? Yes. Yes, she did. So, I mean, I highly recommend it, but let's get to the story that was the basis for that movie. Barbara Graham was born Barbara Wood on June 26, 1923 in Oakland, California. She had a troubled childhood from the start. I mean, literally from the moment she was born. Her mom, who was named Hortense Wood, that's a very old school name. Yeah. She was just 15 years old when she had Barbara. Uh, She was a juvenile delinquent. Her dad basically, I don't even know if he ever was around, but he was gone pretty soon after she came out. 
the, the life of Barbara Graham is pretty tragic. A report from um, a juvenile court that she was in from 1937 describes her mom's uh, conduct as questionable, that she was a poor moral influence on her daughter, and Graham would later say of her mom, she's never cared whether I lived or died as long as I didn't bother her. From the age of two on, the mom basically abandoned her, and she started living with strangers and family members. Her mom actually got sent back to juvie. Oh. Because at two, she's still 17. Like, wow. she was still a minor, and at some point, she got arrested, I think, for, like, whatever whatever those charges would be, like, lewd, unless, lewd behavior, like, a vice she, charge. Because she was a sex worker? Yeah. So, uh, in 1936... Um, Barbara ran away from whatever home she was at at the time. She got busted and was officially made a ward of the court on March 19th, 1937. How old was Barbara when she ran away? Uh, this, I think she's about 13. Okay. Here. So she's still, she's like young. She's but very young. young. She was classified as a wayward girl on the grounds of immorality because she had already had multiple sex part- partners at that age. Oh, wow. She also was a runaway, which is, you know, another reason that she was taken into the juvie court. In July of 1937, she was sent to the Ventura School for Girls, which was where her mom had actually been incarcerated years before. Oh. So shortly before this, when she was about 12, a a welfare worker who had sort of been on her case and knew who Barbara was, was trying to adopt her. Um, A reporter later on, uh, you know, many years after this uh, time, she said at the time the woman who was going to try to adopt her said the poor little kid never had anyone who really loved her and she was the most beautiful thing in the world. She was a little doll always so lively and full of fun. I managed to take her to live with me for a couple of months but Hortense would not even consider letting me adopt her. She was a spiteful vindictive woman. I believe she truly hated Barbara. I mean that is pretty fucked up where you don't yeah. want your kid but you're not going to let anyone else have them. Right. She clearly doesn't care about the welfare of her own child. Right. Like instead of giving her a happy home she basically let her have the same life that she had right so in the ventura reform school or whatever you want to call it barbara was thrown in with the kids who were really bad like gang members and like whatever and she got tough very fast she's definitely like a survivor type which i find very relatable like she kind of adjusts to whatever situation she's in and kind of uses she's pretty smart also so she stood up to the girls who bullied her and just became like a really good fist fighter. But she was also a charmer and she would use that when she could. I was never a fist fighter, by the way. <laughs> My charm was very good. <laughs> I got out of those before I got to fisticuffs. But she hated reform school. I mean, obviously. Twice there during her first year, she ran away and hitchhiked back up to Oakland, and her mom turned her in and oh she got God. sent back to reform school. I know. What a bitch move. So. She was such trouble that the reform school decided they would try to strike a deal with her, that if she completed one year of high school, they would release her. She did, because she's like, I want out of here. Right. They kind of thought that maybe like that would inspire her to, to take on more schooling and want to stay. Look, but she... <laughs> let me just tell you from my own experience of being um, up for expulsion while I was in continuation high school, which is really hard to be up for expulsion while you're right. already going to the school for bad kids. Uh, my principal, like I wasn't going to be able to graduate high school. They were like, you're getting kicked out. You're, you're not going to be able to graduate. You're going to have to get your GED at some point. Right. And just to be able to like graduate, my principal was like, look, I'll strike a deal with you. If you write like a six page essay about why you're really sorry. 
we'll <laughs> let you graduate. And I'm a writer, so I wrote a fantastic essay about how I was going to change and fly straight and narrow. Cut to two years later, I'm in rehab. So right. <clears throat> eventually it worked. Well, I mean, we've discussed this. I also got expelled for truancy. Right. Like the oldest school little rascals thing that I've ever <laughs> been involved in. Right. Um, so obviously Barbara goes right back to Oakland. Um, she's determined, though, to not depend on her mother anymore. So she figures out a way. Some of the girls she grew up with had been getting spending money for themselves by hanging out by the Oakland Navy Yard and becoming dates for sailors on leave. The girls were called seagulls, and the guys called them that after the hungry birds that flocked to the shores of San Francisco Bay. So they, they were thirsty? They they were there getting their little scraps of money and stuff, I oh. guess. So they referred to them as seagulls. Damn. Um, obviously, these late these like hookups kind of run the gamut. Like some of them are legitimately like, let's go get burgers and malts. Right. <laughs> and just I want to have a girl to chat with because these sailors are oftentimes very young as well. Right. Um, but there was also various levels of sexual activity as well. So, uh, but the main thing for Barbara at this point was that she was making it on her own and she didn't need her fucking mom. Right. I get that. <laughs> <laughs> but Barbara did not want to be a seagull forever. Like, as I said before, she was kind of smart and she thought maybe she had, you know, other options uh, as far as her life going forward. When she got a little bit of money, she enrolled in National Business College to learn skills that would hopefully get her some kind of office job. I like National Business College. That right. sounds so that sounds also so very 40s. Like, <laughs> girls, you know, what is, learn your, like, what is it when you, like, shorthand? Like you could become a typist. You become, like, a secretary, and then you meet your husband. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, like, that period. It's There's so like, a great movie based on that. Old-fashioned. Um, it was while she was in business school that she met a young man named Harry, and they became intimate, and Barbara got pregnant. They decided to get married, and um, Barbara was only 17 at the time, and she actually had to ask her mom's permission to get Whoa. married, which I'm sure was like a fucking nightmare nightmare for her. So she wanted to have her baby, and she didn't want her baby to be illegitimate like she was, so she gritted her teeth and got her mom to sign the papers, and they got married. Barbara's child was a little boy named after Harry, the, the dad, and things were kind of going along pretty well until she became pregnant again. So at this point, she was not working. She never got the office job because she was a mom. Uh, and, you know, like very typical type of things. The money was tight. The marriage started suffering because of that. Obviously, they got married very quickly. So right. they probably they didn't, didn't really know, know each, each other. other that well. They're both pretty young. Uh, and then to make matters worse, Barbara, her past kind of caught up with her. He didn't know any of the stuff that had right. gone down in her life because obviously she probably wasn't, you know, amplifying it. So he kind of, that turned him off even more. It's rumored that Hortense was the one who told him, Ugh. which seems on brand for her. Yeah, honestly. So she, the marriage ended and making things even more depressing for her, Harry got custody of the two boys. Like she oh, did not wow. get custody of the kids. So now she's alone and depressed. Like she right. thought she was sort of establishing this more normal, and that's in quotes, life for herself. Uh, and it just wasn't working out. She fell back in with the seagulls, and they were all planning a trip down to Long Beach and San Diego to kind of make money or right. whatever. At this point, she kind of went all the way into it, though. She really was now selling sex 
for money. Like she wasn't just going on dates. She was like, I need money. So right. I'm going to, I'm going to get as much as I can from these guys. Cause I think if you just did the dates, it's like, Oh, they'll buy you dinner right. and give you a dollar for the cab ride home that you can pocket and then take a bus or something. <laughs> I'm guessing. Right. <laughs> I used to do that though. Kind oh. of thing. Not with like hookups, but like with my mom, like right. she'd give me taxi money and I'd take a bus so I could like save it. <laughs> I know how things work. <laughs> Um, by the end of 1942, she had been arrested numerous times for things like vagrancy, prostitution, disorderly conduct, lewd behavior, all those kind of charges. A lot of times when they can't get you on a major one, they just kind of right. fuck you up with these. She would kind of just let it roll off her back. She'd pay the fine and like be out back on you know the street and doing what she wanted. And she uh, had like a very advanced look outlook on sex work. She said at the time, sure, I was a prostitute and a damn good one. Why do people make so much of sex anyway? It's part of our natural makeup, like getting hungry for food. If you want to eat, you go to the grocery store or restaurant. If you need sleep, you sleep. If you want sex, why not get it? What's the difference? <laughs> I mean, that's an amazing quote. Where is the lie? Yeah. Where is the lie? It's absolutely correct. So one sailor she hooked up with in San Diego agreed with Barbara's philosophy, and he asked her to marry him. They got married, but at some point he kind of realized what he had done, and they got an annulment, which Barbara did not contest. She was like, okay, fine. Like, she didn't want to be with someone if they didn't want to be with her. Yeah. Like, come on. So she was sick of Southern California at that point, and she headed back up to the Bay Area and decided to try her luck in San Francisco. In San Francisco, she became um, what is referred to here as a mid-class call girl. She had taken care of a small Union Square hotel business. I think she worked for one of the biggest madams at the time. I think her name was Sally. I wrote it down somewhere, but for some reason Madam it's not here. Sally. <laughs> Madam Sally. Uh, and like her goal was to work her way up to Knob Hill clientele. Hot. <laughs> Love Knob it. Hill is like a very rich yeah. area in San yeah. Francisco, just in case. So she wanted to go from mid-class to high-class. Who doesn't? In San Francisco, she really did start making good money. She she bought nice clothes, and she would go out and had fun. In 1944, using the name Barbara Clemmer, she did end up doing four months for vagrancy. Uh, she was still doing pretty well when she got out of that mess, um, but she, of course, like most women, hooked up with some loser guys who started, Ugh. you know, palling around with her. And then she did them a favor that kind of took her off track for a little bit. Look, the guys always ruin it. Yeah, fuck these guys. So she was doing well, but she was hanging out with a pretty rough crowd. Like most of the people she hung out were with con men, hustlers, petty thieves, like, right. you know, that kind of deal. So these two petty criminals were about to go to, on trial for theft and they asked Barbara to testify as an alibi witness for them. She was definitely a good time gal and she, you know, that's her friends. She's going to fucking help them out and fuck the police, all of that. Unfortunately, once she was sworn in court that she had been with the two men in the time of the crime, the prosecution was able to prove that she wasn't even in San Francisco on the date in question. So she was charged and convicted with perjury and sentenced to a woman's prison at Tehachapi? Tehachapi. Tehachapi. That's where... Um that's where the Tiger Woman was at. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, because it's about the same time period, roughly. That, that she was transferred there, yeah. Yeah. She later um, got the suspend, uh, sentence suspended, uh, so she ended up serving one year in San Francisco County Jail and then was on probation for five years. Um, so she's out now. It's May 1st, 
1948. She's 24 years old. So she's still pretty young after all of this life. I mean, she's lived a lot of life. So she's uh, released from jail and she's once again, sort of desperate to straighten her life out. Like I'm sure being in jail for a year is pretty, (laughs) I need to fucking get my shit together. Even if I'm still doing what I do, like I need to kind of figure it out. She wants to make a new start. And she decides that she needs to leave California and leave behind, like, the bad influences that she's sort of hanging around. She goes to Reno, Nevada, and that's where she Well, no trouble ever happens there. (laughs) Look, I'm not saying she has the best decision-making skills, but she's trying. While she's there, she sees a want ad for, like, a nurse's aide in the town of Tonopah. I'm assuming Rachel knows all these towns. I look at her every time I say one. (laughs) Because she's from Northern Cal. I figure that's, like, by... Lake Tahoe. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's probably Lake Tahoe. Who the hell knows? So she starts working at this hospital. She lives in a respectable boarding house. She starts making friends, and she starts dating a clean-cut guy from town. Uh, he has a normal job, and they obviously get married. Um, so this is her third marriage. But Barbara is still Barbara. <laughs> so even though she's kind of living this good life, and you know she has this family life and a husband, she starts getting fearful that he's going to want to get her pregnant. Here's the thing about trying to date a clean cut guy to get on the straight and narrow. (laughs) Just saying, I know from personal experience, trying to date the good guy, it's not going to help you straighten your life out. You're still going to be you. Exactly. That's like an overwhelming theme of Barbara's life. Like she's always going to be her. Right. And I think the more she tries to fit herself in that. She's Right. She's changing her locations. Yes. I mean, She's changing her outside circumstances. I feel like this is a quote my mom used to say a lot, wherever you go, there you are. But I mean, she yeah. always made the same mistake. So <laughs> I remember her saying that. I was like, bitch, you need to listen to your own advice. <laughs> uh, let's just say I moved around a lot as a kid. <laughs> so Barbara, she just fucking packs all her shit up one day and takes a bus to Los Angeles. And she's still married. Yeah. I'm not quite sure. She's still married. And I don't, I don't, I never saw where she got divorced. Uh, but I'm assuming at some point that happened. Right. Uh, who knows? So when she's back in Los Angeles, she kind of gets back into what she was doing before, but like in a different sort of way. Now she's sort of working the bars along Hollywood Boulevard, being like kind of like a drink girl. Like you sit there and flirt with the men to get the bar business and they kind of pay you. But then I think she does get some work on the side as well. So as she's like doing this work, they described it as freelance. (laughs) I guess there was more formal unions for bar girls. I don't know. I guess she wasn't working under someone. It was just kind of her own thing. Right. She got to know a lot of the bartenders. um, And one of the bartenders she got to know was named Henry Graham. He's like a very boring kind of nothing special guy. And she's going to spice up his life. (laughs) But she began to see him because they were working together at the bars all the time. And Henry, despite his boring look, he did have something that made him a little different. A big dick. No, he didn't have a big dick. Not that I'm aware of. He was very into drugs and he kind of got Barbara. Despite all this thing with Barbara, she never was a drug addict. She didn't really do drugs. This is the guy who kind of got her into that uh, thing. And he was clean cut on the outside. Yeah. So according to Graham, 
this is an, from an interview later in life. We messed around with some marijuana and some laudanum pills that I got from a doctor. I don't know what that is. I should have looked it up, but I'm assuming it's just some kind of drug. Yeah, some kind of <laughs> drug, like an opiate, maybe. Yeah, gets you fucked up. Um, but the drugs weren't even the worst thing that Henry introduced Barbara to. Uh, he also kind of has the distinction of introducing her to this fucking low-level criminal in L.A. named Emmett Perkins. Now, Emmett, at the time, ran a lot of illegal poker and dice games in El Monte. Hot. <laughs> he offered Barbara a job to make more money on the side. So basically what she would do is take the men she was picking up at bars and be like, hey, do you want to go to this gambling right. party in El Monte? <laughs> Who wouldn't? So they'd kind of, she'd bring these, like, whatever marks or whatever you call them back to these gambling parties in El Monte. And she obviously was like, this is a great arrangement. Like I'm making more money. So in the coming months, um, Barbara and Henry got more close. They began living together and eventually they got married. So that's why I was kind of like, I don't know if she got divorced, but she did get married again. So, so is this number four? This is number four. So soon after she married Henry, uh, she got pregnant. So early in 1952, at the age of 28, she had her third son, and his name is Tommy. So Henry was really, at this point, like after the marriage, hitting rock bottom. His drug use had now increased to include heroin, and he was Rachel, yes? Her husband. Her husband, Henry. Okay. He was like the little light drug user. Now he's like hardcore into heroin. Um, and he was really re relying on Barbara's income to take care of the family because she was the one basically earning the big money. That really stressed Barbara out, and she started taking heroin to relieve her stress. I'm so stressed my husband's addicted to heroin. I better do it, too. <laughs> Give me a little bump, bitch. <laughs> I'm doing all the hard work. What are you fucking stressed out <laughs> I mean, I can see. I, I kind of understand it with her. Like, she really was stressed. Right. Um, so, but of course... I mean, I don't know personally, but I'm guessing Rachel probably gets this. <laughs> Once you start doing heroin, you kind of, it starts escalating pretty fast. You, you can't just do one bump here and there or whatever you would call it. One shoot, like every time. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm an innocent. Do you know what I mean? So she quickly has like needle marks lined up Look, and down I'm her arms. I'm just going to say I, I haven't met, I know a lot of heroin Former heroin users, but I've never met a uh, former casual heroin user. <laughs> yes. I will just say that. So they're both basically junkies at this point, although Henry is definitely worse, probably because she had to maintain some kind of income for them. I mean, I don't know. But uh, according to the thing I read, he was sort of way worse. He at some point steals Barbara's stash. Oh, <laughs> she fucking goes off on him. I would too. She takes whatever dope she had left in the house, all the money and some clothes and walks out and leaves him. She goes straight to the house of Emmett Perkins that he's renting in El Monte. She tells him that she's left Hank, that's his nickname, and asked to crash at his house for a while. And he, of course, is like, sure, come on. Uh, he had long been crushing on Barbara. Oh, he's stoked. Um, and she brought drugs. By the way, Barbara is very hot. And I'm not even, like, I'm not saying hot for a murderer. She's, like, very good-looking, movie star kind of quality, good looks. Right. I'm not like, oh, Casey Anthony hot. It's like, no, she's hot even if she wasn't a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Our, our standards are at the same level. So 
Now, okay, so she moves in with this guy and they do start having an affair. Okay, so March 11th, 1953, a gardener parks his truck in front of a woman's house. Her name is Mabel Monahan. She lives in Burbank. He was her gardener and he goes up to the front door to speak to her. He needed a key for the back, whatever, to get, get around to the backyard. The front door was slightly open, which immediately alarmed him as, he, as she was an elderly disabled woman, woman, I'm sorry, widow who lived alone. He rings the doorbell several times trying to like get her attention. He doesn't want to just walk in, uh, but he does sort of eventually sort of open the door a crack more and sort of starts yelling at her like, hey, you know, Mabel, I need the key, da 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 she still doesn't answer. He eventually pushes the door open a little bit further, and he sees that the house has been completely ransacked. Furniture is turned over. Carpets are, like, pulled up. Drawers are pulled out and emptied all over the floor. And everywhere on walls, floor, furniture, rugs, there's blood stains. Oh, my God. He sees a trail of blood, like, leading down a nearby hallway. He doesn't go in. He immediately calls uh, the police. So the body of Mabel Monahan was half in and half out of a closet that the trail of blood led to. Her hands are tied behind her with a strip of bedsheet. A pillowcase is over her head, tied very tightly around her neck with another strip of bedsheet. When the pillowcase was pulled off, police saw that the frail widow had been beaten viciously about the head and, and face with a blunt instrument. Um, so the police immediately are like, oh, she was pistol whipped. That's their theory of what happened. Uh, a coroner's inquest ruled, though, that her cause of death was actually a asphyx- uh, was actually a asphyx- <laughs> it's a hard <laughs> word to say. It's asphyxiation hard. due to strangulation. So she did have like 12 head wounds that crushed her skull in two different places, but those blows had not been what killed her. It was the strip of bed sheet around her neck that had done that, although she probably would have died of those head wounds eventually, eventually if right. she wasn't asphyxiated. But anyways, that was the cause of death. Um, the entire house, like I mentioned before, had been completely ransacked top to bottom. A furnace vent was actually like ripped out of the floor and the trail of blood that continued throughout the house as if the victim had been manhandled from room to room and beaten along the way. Uh, and their opinion, it was like a very violent sort of furious beating. Well, yeah. Uh, it wasn't just to disable her. They were like knocking the shit out of her or whatever. Right. So despite all this bloody, horrible scene, there was no physical evidence. There was no fingerprints, nothing that they could find as far as like physical evidence goes. In the bedroom, they were surprised to find numerous purses and a piece of luggage that had been opened and cast aside and a shabby old black purse that was hanging had not been touched and inside it was $475 in cash and an estimated $10,000 in jewelry. The preliminary investigation revealed an interesting fact to the detectives. Her daughter, Iris, had once been married to a Las Vegas gambler named Luther Scherer, and they had actually lived in the house before Mabel occupied it. They also learned that Mabel and her former son-in-law had a close relationship and that he was often there staying with her when he was in town. Like, they had a good relationship and he'd stay in the house with her. There were rumors around that people, like people interviewed by the police, that he, Luther Scherer, had a safe somewhere in the house and that he was believed to have left large amounts of cash there with Mabel for safekeeping. So with that information in hand, police 
we're pretty sure that the motive for, for her murder was probably someone trying to rob the house and find that safe full of gambling winnings right. or whatever. Um, the second significant thing that happened as far as the investigation went was Iris um, Mabel's daughter publicly offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to the arrest. And that reward information uh, led a small-time criminal named um, forgive me, I don't know if this is bad, Indian George Allen <laughs> to telephone Burbank police. That's his name. I'm sorry. Uh, George told police that 16 months earlier in December of 1951, Allen and four other men discussed a plan to rob that house where, while Mabel was away visiting her daughter, and he confirmed their theory that people like in the criminal world believe that sizable amounts of cash that were skimmed off of gambling money were, were in a safe within this house. He said that the plan never came off with that group of people, but he suspected that one or more of the other men that were there that night, like re-upped the plan with new people. One of the names that Alan gave the police was Baxter Shorter, who was an ex-con and a known burglar. So police spoke to another man at that meeting, and he mentioned a guy named Jack Santo as being there, and police started looking for Santo, and Baxter Shorter um, was arrested shortly after they got this information. He was being questioned by the police. He denied everything initially. He got an attorney, and then he calls the police back inquiring about immunity. Oh. So Baxter Shorter, you know, he goes in to talk to the police, and he he starts telling them the story. His name is Baxter Shorter. Yeah, there's this some is, other pretty crazy names. This is like coming a up. 1940s <laughs> comic strip. So he uh, says that he received a call from a man named Emmett. He didn't know the guy, but the guy said that two friends of his had a business proposition, and it, would he be interested in participating in this little heist or whatever you call it? Shorter uh, went to meet two men. They were named Jack and John the next day at a motel in Almonte. And Jack asked Shorter if he was interested in robbing this Monaghan house in Burbank, as they had discussed previously a few years earlier. And Shorter was not enthusiastic. Um, he wasn't convinced that the safe was really full of money in the house. Um, but they kind of uh, convinced him, and he eventually agrees to go on the job with them. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. 
Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings with big cash back at hundreds of stores. Don't miss headliners like Canon, Fenty Beauty, and Dyson. I can't wait to shop for all of my summer fashion and beauty needs, and we'll definitely be checking out Ulta and Adidas. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. You can really save by stacking cash back on top of other deals. And during Big Give Week, the cash back is bigger than ever. It's the time to shop for everything you need for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Membership is free, and it's all happening May 6th to May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost on top of Big Give Week cashback rates, go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Rakuten is the shopping platform to save while shopping. A second meeting was set the next night at a drive-through, a drive-in on Ventura Boulevard. Oh, I thought it was going to be a drive-through. <laughs> I know. Sorry. And that was where Shorter met the other people who would be involved in the plan, a man, the man named Emmett who called him, and a good-looking woman about 30 with reddish-brown hair who they referred to as Mary. Shorter was not cool with a woman coming along on the plan. But abroad? Emmett, yeah, abroad? <laughs> I don't think so. What kind of operation is this? Uh, but Emmett said she was necessary. He said that the widow was unlikely to open the door for them, but if a woman came to the door, she'd probably open up. So the next night, they all meet up at Rachel, the smokehouse restaurant. <laughs> Thank have you, you been to the smokehouse? I have not. Where okay. is it? Is it in the valley? It's in the valley. It's like right right in Burbank, kind of by Warner Brothers what kind of Studios. Food do they have there? It's a steakhouse. It's by Warner Brothers? Yeah. It's an old school steakhouse. We have to go. And okay. it has it has it's famous for its cheesy bread. <laughs> Uh, sign me up. <laughs> they go to dinner at the smokehouse, and then after dark, they drive the cars to Mabel. They're in two cars. They drive them to Mabel's house. Mabel goes to the door. Um, I'm sorry. They're calling her Mary. He's calling her Mary still. Mary goes to the door, and Mabel does let her in. So that part of the plan worked like what a was charm. she like, my car broke down or something? I think she said she needed to use the phone. Like, it's, definitely. That's the yeah. classic. So once she was inside, the other men soon followed, and Baxter Shorter, according to him, waited in the car until they found the safe. I think he was the safe cracker. Like, that was his job. Like, <laughs> So at some point, Jack comes out and tells him they couldn't find the safe, and Baxter goes in. Once he entered the house, he saw Mabel on the floor of a hallway, lying half in and half out like she was found, badly bleeding about the head and face, blood all over the rug, and she's moaning loudly, and she has a gag in her mouth, so she's like moaning through a gag. Her hands at that point are already tied behind her back. John was kneeling beside her, and Mary was bending down over her. He said that Mary was screaming, uh, to, to sort of screaming at her to like shut up, um, and that... The other guy looked like maybe he was trying to save her. They eventually left her there basically to die, yeah. uh, according to Shorter. And he claims that he called, um, I don't know if it was 911 back then, but he called for an ambulance. Right. Uh, and they did find a record of this call. And 
I guess he didn't give the right address, so they weren't able to send an ambulance. Jesus. Once they got this story from Baxter, they start looking for Jack Santo, and they figured out that Emmett was who he was. He, like, he was a known figure at that point. So when they said Emmett, they're like, Emmett and El Monte? <laughs> like, we know they, that we, guy. We got that guy. Emmett Perkins had all these illegal gambling operations, so he was just very well known to the police. They weren't really sure of Mary, but they knew for a time that he Perkins had a woman working for her, him doing the show, like getting the guys to come to the thing. And her name was Barbara Graham, and she often did use the name Mary when picking up men. So that was one of her little aliases or fake names. So all the names that Baxter Shorter had given authorities kind of lined up. Like they all made sense. Like, you know, these, these individuals. Like individuals, everything was it sort of validated what he was telling them. Um, there was another man he mentioned, John True, and uh, he was named by Baxter, and he was the first to be arrested. His girlfriend actually, when he got arrested, she she didn't wasn't there, and she didn't know where he was, and she thought he got kidnapped. Yeah. So she reported it to the police that he got kidnapped, and then the police had to clarify that he was actually arrested, and that was sort of when the newspapers got hold of the case, and the headline was, Suspect Held in Monaghan Murder. Because this murder was a big deal, because people were like, how... How dare It's a brutal mar- murder of an elderly woman. Right. I mean, it was just kind of a it's shocking awful. crime. So they weren't, they didn't want that to get out because they were trying to find the other people. Right. But it just sort of, through a weird circumstance, uh, a series of uh, events, it kind of leaked. So the police offered to put Baxter in protective custody, but he declined. The following uh, evening at his home with his girlfriend in the house, he was taken away by gunpoint. So this kind of. By the police? No. Oh. By unknown people. Okay. So the whole story breaks again. They're like, oh, the main suspect in this case has been taken away at gunpoint and no one knows where the fuck he is. Uh, the headline blares, kidnapped LA informant slain, police believe. Like, police at this point are like, we didn't do it. <laughs> right. And we had offered him protective custody. Now he's fucking missing. Right. And no one knows where he's he is. He's guy. Yeah. So... Now they're pretty much like, well, fuck it. We can't, like, hide the truth. And they, they kind of announce that they're searching for these people, um, including Emmett Perkins, Jack Santo, Barbara Graham, and John True. And they're just already wanted for the suspicion of, of Mabel's murder, basically. So for the next three weeks, the police in Los Angeles are just, like, looking everywhere for these fugitives. In the end, it was Barbara's addiction to heroin that got them caught, so she, like, went to score drugs somewhere, and a policewoman was working undercover. Uh, she was present when Barbara sort of set up to buy a heroin heroin from a, a drug dealer. Like, they were going to meet up so she right. could purchase it. Barbara had now bleached her hair blonde, so she was, like, a bleach blonde. That was, like, her effort <laughs> to change her look. Right. Uh, she goes to make her buy, as arranged, goes into the ladies' room. She shoots up there, and then she uh, leaves on a bus back to wherever she's going, and the three women officers who were there follow her. Like, they're not busting her. They're, like, finding right. where she's going so they can hopefully find the other guys. Um, once the three lady detectives are on the case, they call... or or the LAPD, um, the guys, <laughs> are, are informed that they're on the chase, and they kind of follow the bus to wherever they're going. So Barbara goes into this apartment, like a complete shithole. The police eventually, like, 
bust down the door, and they find the trio inside. Barbara is totally nude. Whoa. She's, she stands up in shock from a sofa when they bust into the door. Jack Santo is also naked. He's stretched on a bed with a direction. Sorry. Whoa. And Emmett Perkins is also naked, and he's walking out of a bathroom. This is so Florida. I love it. <laughs> It reminded me of, like, I think it was a bonus episode where I talked about the butt plug flying out when the the police walked in. So they're kind of shocked because they're naked and getting busted. I mean, I'm sure that's, like, a shocking. Even if you know people are looking for you, clearly they were just doing something. They were in the middle of something. They They were were busy. I don't know what they were up to. Uh, One of the things I read was someone said, like, and Santo, he had never lost an erection faster. (laughs) I can't report that fact. No, that, that seems like someone's trying to be funny, mister. Just give me the facts. Barbara gets held back by officers. I mean, she's kind of terrified. She's probably still high, right? Like, yeah. And she's naked, so she's, like, trying to cover up. Like, even though she's, like, an icon as far as a hoe goes, she probably still had some modesty. Yeah, I'm <laughs> like, sure. When point... you have guys, like, busting into the door, I mean, come jarring. on. Perkins is uh, put down on his knees, and his hands are on his head. I mean, so it's the whole shield. They they tell, they inform Santa to pull up his underwear at some point. I like <laughs> sir, that, sir, sir, please pull up sir, your, your underwear. Your I like that he's, like, not even doing anything, and they had to, like, tell him. <laughs> so now they're kind of all cordoned off into a corner of the room, uh, the police are obviously letting them get dressed, and and they're kind of examining the clothes, and then they're just searching the whole fucking room for any kind of evidence that they can uh, get. So at this point, the hunt for Mabel's killers are over. So there had still been no trace of Baxter Shorter at this point, um, so he's not charged with anything, obviously. But the charges, um, all three are charged with the murder and put in jail. But it's kind of like up in the air now because they don't have their main witness. Uh, right. And it's all hearsay. They can't like take his confession or whatever you want to call it and present yeah, in, how in a court. Yeah, how are they going right. to charge these people? So, so something happens while Barbara's in prison. She befriends a younger woman named Donna Prowl, who is a 20-year-old divorcee. She's in jail following like a driving under the influence charge where she actually killed a woman during an accident. So that's why she's in prison. She becomes very close with Barbara. Barbara kind of takes her under the wing. Barbara's like 30 at this point and and she's 20. So they have the four people in custody. uh, But as I said before, the statement by Baxter Shorter is inadmissible. uh, So they need to get another person to basically confess. Yeah. They don't know where he is and they have little hope that he will be found alive. So the detectives next turn to John True, and they think that they can kind of get him to confess. Uh, to confess. They offer him immunity, and he basically leaps at the chance right away. He doesn't fucking... He's like, <laughs> He's sure. like, fine. So he basically tells the prosecutors essentially the same story as Baxter Shorter did, but it's even better this time because he was there the whole time inside the house, whereas Baxter was in the car. Baxter was in the car, so he missed whatever happened initially. So the new information they gather is that uh, True claims that he saw Barbara Graham pistol whipping Mrs. Monahan with a chrome-plated revolver right in his presence, uh, and that he observed Barbara's hand, hand the pistol to Emmett at some point and saying to him, knock her out. And that was right when Baxter Shorter came in and he saw them like over her body. So the DA, whose name is Levy, he now feels like he has a case. He can present this 
confession from John True as a witness, uh, and he gets murder indictments for Perkins, Santo Graham, and True. But it's kind of like a he has to kind of indict him, right? And then once the trial starts, they kind of will immediately go, we're dropping all charges, <laughs> like da da da. It's like some kind of legal maneuver. So he is taken outside of jail for his protection, and he takes the protection, obviously. Yeah. He's not going down the same road as Baxter. So when news breaks that John True will be testifying against the other uh, three, that makes the newspapers, and Barbara Graham is fucking shook by it. <laughs> so she says, she gives a quote to the newspaper, I may go to the fucking gas chamber, but I'll sure as hell take some people with me. <laughs> Did she say fucking? Yes. Good. Good for her. That's a real quote. So she confides all of this in Donna, like Donna is her little like confidant. Right. They start having a sexual relationship, Rachel. <sighs> look, be- here, look. <laughs> Because Barbara murdered an old woman, I can't officially put her on the buy icons list. Well, maybe after you hear the whole story, you can. If she had murdered a corrupt cop, she would shoot right to the top of the list. But I need the whole story. Okay, we'll get the whole story on this. So according to some of like, she wrote a ton of letters in prison, but they call each other mommy. Like Donna calls oh. Barbara mommy and and Barbara calls Donna candy pants. Wait, wait. <laughs> candy pants? Candy pants. Oh my God. Uh, and there are some, I can't remember if I wrote, there's a lot of letters between them. Like they're in different sections of the jail. I can't, right. I'm not quite sure So they're why. sending love letters. They're sending love letters and people obviously got them. And it was a big scandal because lesbianism back then was even more like, yeah, it was like, oh. (laughs) Um, So in some of these letters, Donna consults her, don't worry, mommy, it'll be all right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. So these notes also are entered into evidence at some point. So they talked about like, you know, in a lot of the letters, Barbara talks about how desirable Donna is. They talk of their deep kisses. And the, she would draw candy canes on the notes because that was how sweet she thought Donna tasted. Well, her pussy tasted sweet. <laughs> it was pepperminty. It was like biting into a York Your- peppermint patty. <laughs> when I bite into a York peppermint patty, suddenly I'm back in prison yeah. with my... Candy pants is on my face. <laughs> and she's riding me like an alpine slope. <laughs> so... Donna comes up with a plan. She knows a guy who knows a guy. (laughs) And that guy will give Barbara a false alibi for the night of Mabel's murder. Mommy likes this idea, Rachel. And she told Candy Pants to get in touch with her friend. So the guy, about 11 days before the trial starts, this guy, his name is Sam, visits Barbara in in jail. Like, they meet in this thing. There's all this secret coded stuff I just, like, couldn't even get involved involved with where they had passcodes and da 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 but basically they kind of get their story straight yeah. in a tricky or sneaky Through kind of fashion. Little letters. They get the story straight. She can, you know, works it out with Sam so he can go into trial and testify that she was with him all night, basically giving her an alibi. Part of it is like, she doesn't want to be, um, he's worried about being nailed for perjury. So he wants to make sure also that Baxter isn't going to come back and that and, he's not alive. Yeah, and Barbara assures him that Baxter is dead, basically. Right. So the trial starts. They're all tried together. It begins Friday, August fourth, nineteen fifty-three, and that's five months and five days after Mabel's murder. 
uh, from the start, Bloody Babs is a media obsession. Of course. Like, they she even fucking, has a nickname. They fucking, I mean, all the focus is on her, basically. Right. Because you can imagine, we've talked about this before, the female criminal is obviously seen as, like, that's against nature. They're moms and wives. Like, they don't do this kind of thing. So they're instantly seen as this extra monstery person. She doesn't really do anything to, like, help herself as far as these things go. She comes into court wearing, like, form-fitted suits. She has high heels on. She has her hair rolled up in French twists. Her nails are, like, sleek and, like, painted. Um, And the men all look like shifty, low-level, you know, gangster wannabes. So she's coming in, like, She's glamorous. She's glamorous. And as I said before, she's, like, very attractive woman. Right. The first um, order of business, as I mentioned earlier, is dismissing all charges against star witness John True, and they did that. It took three days to get the jury together. The first witness is called, basically, like they call the witnesses. There's no evidence presented, as I said before, because there's literally no physical evidence. It's all circumstantial. They do have the coroner testify, and that sort of was a big moment at the court, in in the courtroom, because after he testified, Barbara is being escorted from the courtroom and she faints. Oh. And she sprains her ankle. Oh, so she wants to be like feel And bad that's for like me? a huge like front page headline like that bloody babs faints. <laughs> like da 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 da. It does delay the trial cuz her ankle has to heal, so there's that element too. And it's when she comes back that uh John testifies and he gives basically the whole story that I told you before and it's very dramatic. We get the details of the robbery. Uh he talks about Um, Barbara, like, just being, like, a really instrumental part of this. She wasn't just, like, knocking on the door and leaving. She's there, like, pistol-whipping. Did they get away with any money? Uh, No. (laughs) Because I was going to say... And they were furious when they found out that they had missed all that jewels, the jewels Uh, and money. Right. Uh Uh-huh. No, they got nothing. I mean, this was all for nothing. So, uh... He was asked at some point, like, the first thing he saw when he got through the front door, and he replied, he, he saw Barbara Graham striking Mrs. Monahan in the face with a gun and Mrs. Monahan crying out, no, no. I mean, so uh, people were disgusted hearing right. this woman beat this old woman basically to death. He's just continued to be questioning. It's all about Barbara. Was Barbara, how was he, she holding his, her head? Like, was she bleeding? Like, where was she bleeding? So it's just like this really gruesome, detailed account of Barbara beating this woman up. He then claimed that he knelt on the floor and held the widow's head in his lap. And that's when they came and tied her hands up and put the pillowcase over her head and tied that with the sheet. So he's just giving this detailed, like the courtroom is riveted because it's right. pretty gruesome. He said that they were in the house for about 15 to 20 minutes Total? Uh, yeah. And he said at some point Mrs. Monahan stopped mo- moaning and that uh, she was starting to bleed through the pillowcase. And Baxter Shorter said, there's nothing here. We might as well go. Um, so after John True testified, um, the Los Angeles press actually categorized, categorized him as an overgrown boob. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But call sorry. The adjective boob it's is hilarious. terrible. It's it's like one of my least favorite ways to describe. I mean, it's funny. It is. It's weird. confusing. It's like you're a boob. Yeah. I mean, it's a compliment, <laughs> quite honestly. <laughs> so obviously that's very dramatic testimony. He's escorted out with nine guards surrounding him. So it's like a big show that, you know, we're not going to let this guy get killed too. Right. So at this point, Barbara is like, wow, like, 
I'm going to be found guilty. Like, well, thanks, John. <laughs> She's like, I think it, it was like the moment it sort of, she woke up to the fact that she was going to be convicted of this crime. She's not going to be able to get away with this. Right. So all along, she kind of said that she didn't remember that night. Like, that was her sort of answer to the questions That's about her that night. Defense. Like, I don't remember that night. I don't know where I was, et cetera, et cetera. She finally uh, tells her lawyer that she actually does remember where she was that night. Oh. And she has her old friend, Sam, who had reminded her that they were together we were, we, yeah. in a hotel room in Encino. We were fucking. You don't remember? Yeah. So, so that night in lockup, Mommy passes a note to Candy Pants to use <laughs> the inmate to call Sam and say, hey, you got to go to court tomorrow. I told my lawyer that you're coming to give me an alibi. So she's doing this, like... 20, like last minute alibi thing. She, her, she hasn't even told her lawyer about it yet because she doesn't want him to be in on the scam, basically. Right. So she acts like, hey, I just remembered. I have an alibi. Right. So at this point, Barbara thinks like this is a clear cut win. I have an alibi. Like I have a witness who's going to, you know, whatever. She's, she doesn't give a fuck about Emmett and Jack. She's like, tough, tough titty. Like, <laughs> fuck you. Like I'm going to save myself. I'm not going to the gas chamber. I realize it hurts you guys, but I'm sorry. So she has her way out and she's taking it despite it hurting her friends. And she's like, fuck it. They, they would never do it for me. Like, right. you know what I mean? If they had a chance to, they would take it as well. So the next day court convenes, Barbara sees Sam standing at the back of the courtroom. The proceedings began and, and the whole plan Barbara made falls apart. Uh-oh. Prosecutor Levy rises at some point and calls Sam to the sand. Sam comes down the aisle and looks at Barbara as he's walking up, and Barbara is in disbelief. She says to her lawyer, that's my witness. Why is the prosecution <gasps> calling him? Sam takes a stand, and Levy asks him his name and asks him his occupation, and he is a police officer. Oh! So he was wait, a under- minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Pause. Yeah. This was who Candy Pants recommended? Yes. This was who her girlfriend sold her out? Her girlfriend sold her out. She got an undercover police officer to come in. She had set up mommy. She was approached with a deal to reduce her jail time if she helped police trap a confession for Barbara Graham, and she agreed. So the whole that- time she's basically scamming Barbara. Like, she did it all from the beginning to get Barbara. Do you think she Barbara. didn't even love her at all? <laughs> candy Pants. I mean... Candy Pants was, didn't even love Mommy. That was... She was... That pussy was not as sweet as Barbara was tricked into believing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the equivalent of a candy cane. Because candy cane, I believe, is a shitty candy. It is a shitty candy. So, I mean, she got a candy cane. Right. She should have shot for chocolate. <laughs> or at least a butterscotch. So Barbara basically had to watch her witness testify against her. That is mortifying. Beyond, it's so embarrassing. I'm just saying, like, beyond, like, being, like, oh, my God, I'm fucked. Like, that's also just really embarrassing. Well, especially for someone like Barbara, who was smart. Right. And I think they had tried to do something similar earlier, and everyone was like, oh, come on. But I think she really believed that she was in love. Yeah. Like, it's pretty fucked up. So, uh, also, she confessed about Baxter. Like, it was bad. Right. Emmett and Jack, they both declined to take the witness stand in their defense, which is very common. But at this point, Barbara is like, well, I need to do something. Like, uh, right. And she doesn't want to give up. Like, she definitely sees it as, like, I need to take the stand in my, in, in my own defense, especially after she had been duped by this guy. Um, so she shows up into court 
like shapely in her tailored pearl gray suit. Her hair now is in a in a more conservative bun, but she's still Barbara. Like she's trying to kind of portray herself as more like, you know, conservative. Right. Uh, but yeah, she's still who she is. Um, she's definitely playing up the young housewife who had a you know just was trying to earn a living to take care of her kids. Blah 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 blah. All of this bullshit. So under her lawyer's questioning, she definitely sells this victim of a sordid, shabby life that she was born into, doing the best she could. Um, she explained the fake alibi. She said in court, I felt he was my last chance. She starts breaking during this moment and is like, you know, balling up Kleenex and doing right. the whole nine yards. I couldn't prove where I really was. And if he walked out, well, I just wouldn't have had anyone. So she kind of is like, you know, what else was I supposed to do? Like, sure, I lied. Right. But, you know, a bitch has got to do what a bitch has got to do. <laughs> like, who could blame her? Um, the DA brings out the love notes exchanged between mommy Uh-oh. and candy and he forces Barbara to read them aloud <gasps> to the jury. Oh, that's like reading the, in front of the whole class. That's so embarrassing. Right. And at some point she's so upset that she says to him, like you read them. Like she like forces him to read it. She right. can't do it anymore. Cause it's pretty upsetting. And like you said, she feels like a fucking fool. As I mentioned before, this was like lesbian, scandal like people were like whoa (laughs) like this was just not heard of back in those days in like a major way like that so people were freaking the fuck out about these letters she steps down from the witness stand eventually and she clearly knows she fucked up by testifying like she should have never testified because these letters wouldn't have been brought out and just it was bad it did not it did not do any good for her after five weeks the trial kind of starts wrapping up the jury uh goes off to make their decision and they're unanimous. They deliberate for less than five hours, finding all three people guilty of murder in the first degree. Barbara is actually reading a Bible at the defense table. And when she hears the verdict, she completely breaks down and sobs. Um, Two of the wardens or matrons, they kind of go in to take her away and they're also crying. So I feel like people were sort of charmed by her or not charmed, but they felt for her because she really did have like a fucked up, existence and I do feel like I don't know so as she's being taken away she says I'd rather get the gas chamber than rot away in prison for the rest of my life so I do wanted to discuss a little bit here about really unfair coverage that she got during the trial yeah there was a report done in 1990 a study that reviewed coverage of the five daily LA newspapers that covered the case at the time and they basically determined that those newspapers failed at covering Barbara objectively. I mean, I don't doubt that. They ignored facts and focused on speculation and obviously very trivial, trivial things. There was a constant emphasis on Graham's appearance and there was an assumption that she was guilty. The focus um, of the coverage was often on aspects of her personal life, like her sex work history, her marriages, her drug addiction or drug use, uh, et cetera. She was also portrayed kind of as this vamp, a callous, emotionless, like concerned with her appearance and like unremorseful and seductive, like very typical kind of stuff. They would always describe her during the trial like as like, oh, something happened and she yawned and stretched, like just like she was bored with the whole thing, like didn't take anything serious. They talked about her nails being overly lacquered. They reported that she was wisecracking and flippant, like just like all this kind of bullshit coverage. Um, Even when she fell 
that time she faint, fainted and fell, that was also seen as like, oh, like dramatic. <laughs> yeah, so dramatic. Um, her hair was also like a huge topic because she had dyed it a bunch. But it's like no matter what she did, this kind of reminded me of Marsha Clark. It's like no matter what she did, it was like the wrong thing. Like right. she had red hair. She was a bottle blonde. Like she was, you know, it was a whatever color her hair suggested that she was bad. Like if right, it was right, red, right. she was bad. If it was bleach blonde, she was bad. Like, And I'm sure, like you said before, all the newspaper articles covering this case focused only on Barbara as opposed yes, to the two other men absolutely. who were there too. And there were other things, like also anytime she was prim, it was insincere. Uh, they focused on her her figure. Like she was always described as strong hands, shapely thighs, like tight Ugh. fitting, like just like gross stuff. You probably wouldn't have nowadays, uh, although you would have probably as recent as five years ago, right? Right. There were also like other things, like not not about her appearance, but about her guilt. Like terms like allegedly were never used. Right. So it was just kind of like everything was basically tailor made for her to look guilty from the start. Like right. Just this whatever. So there were appeals processes, obviously. They uh, were scheduled to die by the gas chamber on June 3rd, 1955. That's quick. All of their appeals were denied. And I mean, we've kind of touched on this before, but the death penalty cases happened fast back then. Right. Like now it can take 20 years for oh, someone yeah. and even longer. Right. Then it was like they got them over as quick as fucking possible. Um, I mentioned she was reading the Bible. She really turned to religion more as a as a comfort once she resigned herself to the fact that she would be being put to death. She gave few interviews while awaiting the death penalty, and everyone who interviewed her seemed to want her to confess and clear her conscience. She finally said to them, "If I were guilty, I would never admit it, and my and let my children be branded with the stigma all their lives." <laughs> so she basically was like, "Even if I was guilty, I'm not going to admit it, you dumb bitches. So stop fucking trying." <laughs> um, as it got closer and closer to June 3rd, Barbara at some point shrugged and said, if it's God's will that I die, then I'll die like a lady. So on the morning of her execution, uh, Rachel, you will like this fact, she ate a hot fudge sundae. That oh, was her. that sounds so good right now. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. So that was like her last meal. She. You know what I'm really into right now? What? Banana splits. Oh, yeah. You told me you had one. I'm that really, sounds good. I'm really into them. We should them. make them. I know. We should. But this banana split I had in New York like a month ago, it was homemade pistachio ice cream. Oh, yeah. It was like made in-house and homemade chocolate ice cream and homemade vanilla ice cream. And then it had caramel sauce on it and chocolate sauce on the other side Ugh. and whipped cream and bananas. And it was like the perfect sundae. It had, it didn't have like all the bullshit nuts that I don't yeah. want on it. It was just like perfect. Like remember the walnuts and syrup? That was like a topic. Ew, yeah, I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want that. And, and here's the thing. Here's my problem with most Sundays who put nuts on them. They're never toasted. Right. You have to toast nuts. Also, I like that you're getting hot fudge and caramel because that was always my, my bane of my existence when you had to choose at McDonald's. I, I was like, choose. I want both. I want, I want both. hot fudge and caramel. This had both. I will pay any dollar amount. <laughs> I agree. I, that's like such a dilemma for me. Okay, I'm sorry. Continue. That's okay. So she has a hot fudge sundae, which I feel like is a Rachel and Desi approved last Absolutely. Meal. Absolutely approved. She applies on uh, red lipstick. And then she prepares herself for this procession of 13 steps between the holding cell and the gas chamber. This uh, is commonly known as dead men walking. Like that's right. like the dead men walking uh, stroll or whatever. A San Francisco Chronicle correspondent described the scene 
this way. She was there as a witness. Right to the end, she was dressed as if for a luncheon in one of San Francisco's swanky hotels. She wore a well-fitted champagne wool suit with matching covered buttons. Her brown, high-heeled pumps were a fashionable contrast. Small gold pendants fell from her ears, and on her left hand was Hank Graham's gold wedding band. So she looked good. Which yeah. I approve of. I mean, come on. I didn't know you could wear your own clothes. I honestly didn't either, and I, I wonder if that's the case anymore. I but don't I've think seen so. the pictures. Like she is dressed up like she's going to fucking high tea. <laughs> <laughs> so the execution was scheduled at 9.05 a.m. And part of the reason they did that is that they thought it would avoid some of the press. I can't remember the warden's name. By the way, she this is at San Quentin. Yeah. I think we were talking about we this were. like that. So she wasn't housed at San Quentin, but that's where she went to get the death penalty. The warden at the time, his name, uh, I can't remember his first name, but his, his last name is Teets. <laughs> <laughs> Just had to bring up that very That's important great. point. That's great. So uh, the authorities call at that point to postpone the execution until the California Supreme Court could hear a new argument from her attorney. This legal maneuver is rejected, and an hour later, as the prison guards were taping the stethoscope over her heart, a second call comes in, causing a further delay, and it's it's basically like all these stays of execution keep happening. So this was like a real psychological torment for Barbara. Because is like, she going to live? Is she's she like going to die? She's literally being strapped in, and they get this phone call, like... Uh, stay like, hold on, we're waiting for da 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 da. She, at some point, according to eyewitnesses, says, like, through tears, why are they torturing me? Like, Ugh. she just wants to get this fucking over with. At 11:30 a.m., she is finally, you know, prepared to die once again. She asks for a sleeping mask to be placed over her eyes. Um, she's the only person in San Quentin history to ask for this. Um, a woman who's there happens to have a sleeping mask and she says, I don't want to watch those son of bitches watch me die. People are like literally lining up to watch her go in this gas that chamber. That is so morbid. It's so fucking creepy. It is. Um, so she's led into the chamber by two priests, one on each arm. They strap her in the chair. A tube is attached to a stethoscope on her chest so that the doctors can kind of examine her from outside the chamber. She's told the easiest way to go was to wait until she heard the cyanide pellets plop into the sulfuric acid and then count to 10 and inhale deeply. As they're leaving, her last words are, good people are always so sure they're right. That's like a badass fucking last words. She also says to the guy who gave her the advice about like waiting 10 seconds and to breathe and then breathing in, she's like, how would you know? So like she's that. definitely Barbara up until, up until the end. Right, right. So she dies. They clean up the whole room, and that's where uh, Santo and Perkins die the same day, at two, like later in the afternoon. Wow. They use the same gas chamber and just kind of clean it up and then bring the new people in. Apparently, uh, Santo's last words were, don't you fellas do anything I wouldn't do. That's cute. I like that. That's <laughs> now, they're, by the way, they're much more jovial when they're going to the death chamber. They're right. like cracking jokes. I have Typical no idea. Men. <laughs> Typical men. So... Obviously, the controversy already starts brewing because of the last-minute delays and back and forth. Like, Barbara basically, when she goes in initially, she's completely calm and self-controlled and ready to die. But by 10 a.m., as things have gone back and forth, she's literally, like, hysterical and, like, a tortured woman by the end of this. So it was, like, a really difficult experience for her. Opponents of the death penalty latched onto that and were like, this is cruel and unusual punishment. 
Barbara, by the way, described herself as paying for a life of little sins. Like she feels like she was executed for who she was. Right. Uh, only one more woman went to the gas chamber after her, and that woman's name is Elizabeth Duncan, and that happened in 1962. And only one other woman was executed in America between 1955 and 1984. She was the third woman to be executed in California that century, and one of only nine prisoners to go to the gas chamber there between then and 1955. So she was like a rare, a woman to get executed was pretty rare. So one of Barbara's strongest allies was a San Francisco reporter named Edward Montgomery. He initially was always on the side of the prosecution. And at some point he changes his mind and he doesn't really know why he did that, but he became one of her like staunchest supporters. He really wanted to exonerate her. Even after her, his death, he like tried to exonerate after her death. He still was trying to get her name cleared. That's how strongly he believed that she was innocent. He is the one who contacted Hollywood producer Walter Wanger, who at that time specialized in socially uh, socially significant message films, right. like that sort of challenged the power structure. He jumped at the chance to tell Graham's story. They brought on uh, director Robert Weiss, and then they had screenwriters Don Mankiewicz and Nelson Gidding, and they had Susan Hayward on board to play Graham, or they wanted her. So this movie is the one I mentioned up top, I Want to Live. And it's told from the perspective of the woman who's being accused. And it's definitely like the dead man walking of its day. This movie is very anti-death penalty. And that's partially because of the reporter who was basically letting them read all the letters between them and all of the inside information he had from Barbara because they became close towards the end of her life. Uh, Susan Hayward was always their first choice to star, but before she accepted, she insisted in reading all the materials because she wanted to get into Barbara's mind. And she read like every trial transcript, every newspaper magazine account. Uh, and she talked to Ed Montgomery. Uh, so they really, she really was on board that Barbara had been crucified by the press and that she kind of respected that he did this about face at the end. Like she took that as being, as being very meaningful that he was like completely on board with her conviction and then had a 180. So, uh, this movie, by the way, I saw this movie before I knew anything about Barbara Graham. And when I watched it, I remember being completely horrified that an innocent woman, like that's how strongly they're telling you to think that she's innocent. Right. You are watching this movie horrified <laughs> when she's being put to death. And this, I watched the scene where she's being put to death today. It's like five minutes long. Jeez. And we're seeing her being strapped in, the pellets dropping, the smoke coming into the room. Like, it's an insane scene. I was like, I couldn't breathe while I was watching it today. Because it was like, I did remember feeling like the idea that an innocent person would be put to death is so horrifying. Right. <laughs> like, and watching that scene was just like, I was like, wow, this is like a great scene. Like, so I definitely recommend watching it. Maybe we'll post it on Facebook. The movie is uh, definitely pro-Barbara. Um, a lot of her sort of, in quotes, bad behavior is completely glossed over. They don't talk about all the husbands, the heroin addiction. They make the men in her life definitely seem like the people who pushed her right. to be who she was. She kind of comes off like more of a fun party girl who kind of got into the wrong crowd. Like right. there's lots of scenes that I remember seeing as a kid, like, I want to be that. Like <laughs> right. she's like at jazz clubs and like, she's like fucking having fun and drinking. And like, right. it definitely sells her as like this party girl who got wrapped, 
like I'm sure like you probably had experiences where you're just having fun and all of a sudden people are doing shit you're like wait a minute like right but I, mean, I also definitely had agency and participated in some absolutely things. yeah but it's like yeah so they definitely try to sell it as like right. she wrong place wrong time and right. got hooked up in these things so you know that was something that appealed to Susan Hayward obviously like this kind of dual personality like all these different sides that she definitely did have she uh, described Barbara as having a fascinating, contradictory traits of personality. She was a juvenile, an adult, a delinquent. She was arrested on bad checks. Like, she just loved, like, all of these things. She was also trying to be a good wife and mother. She read poetry. She liked jazz and classical music. That was one of the hilarious things I saw there. Like, she was into the finer things, like <laughs> drugs and <laughs> classical music. Like, they kept bringing up this classical music. I was like, okay, beef, it's what for, what's for dinner. I like classical music, too. <laughs> I Want to Live opened in 1958. It had pretty much all positive That's reviews. Like right after she was executed. I know. It had a really big box office. It was like a box office hit, too. And as you mentioned earlier... Hayward won the Academy Award for Best Actress for her performance, which is pretty great. And this was like a barely, a very big boost to the um, anti-death penalty crowd. Like yeah. this movie definitely changed a lot of minds. Now there was a television movie version of I Want to Live. I haven't seen it, but it sounds amazing. It was produced 25 years later and it starred Lindsay Wagner bionic woman who yeah played the whole bionic woman and this was like even more heartwarming version of barbara's story which makes me really want to see it it basically said that she became a nanny after reform <laughs> school <laughs> like the father of the kids she's a nanny hits on her and that's why she runs away and gets trapped in this bad situation wow i mean it's just like She's innocent, like she goes to Tijuana and she's just innocently there smuggling World War II ration. But I mean, it sounds like insane to me, but it's definitely like they make her even look more like an angel. Uh, so I recommend the first movie and I, I feel like I want to see the TV movie. It sounds awful. It sounds but I'll awful watch it. and awesome. Uh, and then, so yeah, that's the story of Buddy. Bloody Babs, and in the words of one reporter, she was the most beautiful victim the gas chamber has ever claimed. That's dark. <laughs> Very dark, right? I mean, look. It's like, what a backhanded compliment. That is dark. <laughs> there were some things I read. I didn't get into all the conspiracy facts and stuff like that. Right. But there were some things like that the 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 hits on Mabel were clearly from someone who was right-handed and she was left-handed or vice versa. I can't remember. Like, So there is... Here's there is... I don't think that she would. I think she was there. Oh, yeah. Uh, do I think that she beat Mabel? That doesn't seem likely to me. Like, I don't know. Like, right. why would she have be the one pistol whipping her? Right. It doesn't seem. Also, she's small. Like, she's a small woman. Right. Like, I can't remember her. She might be like literally like 110 pounds and like 5'1 or something. Like, right. She's tiny. So it's like the idea that she's going to beat even like a woman who's older and possibly has some kind of disability seems unlikely to me. Right. But, I mean, that could just be my prejudice that women don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> but she didn't have a history of it either. Right. It wasn't she like... She didn't have a violent history. She didn't have a violent history. And why wouldn't the men do it? They seem like... Men seem like the one who would get angry. Like, where's the fucking money? Like... Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. So do I think she was there? There was also something I read that's part of the law where when everyone's there together, they're all equally guilty. It has a name I can't remember. But... It, but according to that law, it doesn't even matter if she didn't do anything. Right. She was there. So well, she's I don't a part believe of it. in that. 
I don't believe in that either. I think there are, are extenuating circumstances right. that have some people more guilty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, I was just wondering if, like, that was, like, a prove if, like, where you stood on it, like, if she did it or not. I or think... If there was, like, a general consensus no, that there was a gray there area. No, It goes back and forth. Okay. Uh, I don't think she's as innocent as the movies make her oh, out. Oh, no, I don't think so either. Um, but I definitely feel like she was hooked up in the wrong crowd and was probably there. It was shocking to read more about the crimes because I did have this impression that it was an innocent person being killed. Right. Uh, from the movie. And I recommend, if you don't watch the movie, like check out that scene because it's pretty intense. You're right. And I was surprised watching it today that I was like literally like on the edge of my seat. Oh my like, God. It's crazy. It's really right. sad. And she's really good. So cool. But that's that. All right. Cool. Well, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.